0: Yeah, good morning, church. Thank you for coming and being here this morning. Uh, I'm super grateful um, to have you all here, to have us all here worshiping this morning. Can you cut that again? Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I'm thankful to, to have you guys here this morning. Uh, and it's a cold winter day, it seems like, and and the snow is going to be falling here this evening, so it's going to be a, a pretty nice little winter uh, fest in the morning, and we get to go, hopefully, uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll get to go sledding and stuff like that, right? And Cody will probably get called off work because, no, this, this, this city will starve without concrete, Cody says, you know what I'm saying? It, it won't thrive without him. So anyways, if you have your Bibles, turn to First Thessalonians chapter five, 1 Thessalonians in chapter five. And before we start, I'm gonna pray, okay? So Father, we're so grateful. Uh, this morning that you've called us here to this place uh, at Amago Day at this local church, uh, each and every single one of us that you've called here, and and God, I'm grateful that you've called us here and that you have have chosen us specifically to be in this body. That this body lacks nothing um, to to accomplish the will that you have for us. Although we might be small, we are mighty, and I'm grateful, God, for every single person that you've brought here this morning. And so, Lord, this morning we do pray for the Hoffmans as they're not with us this uh, this this morning on, on Sunday, as um, they have a, a, an unexpected blessing in their house this morning as they get to 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 tend to and care for um, some, some more children. And, and God, we just pray that you would comfort them during this time, that God, you'd give them endurance, and that God, you would continue to um, sanctify them and use them in their household as godly parents and as, as lights for their children to follow. And we pray this morning also for Joanna, God, for... Um, her health, that, God, you would be with her um, during this time. Comfort her, make her feel um, better, and we pray for answers And as she seeks those things um, from her, from her doctors. So, God, we just pray for that this morning. We trust you. And, Father, we also pray for the other church planters and missionaries that are across the United States and across the world that are doing Sunday services just like this one, with just a few faithful people gathered in a small room singing praises to the Father, the Creator of all things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, all the church planters and missionaries that are gathered in a small room like this right now, this morning, preaching faithfully from the Bible. God, we pray this morning that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them endurance, that they would remember the calling that you placed on their life. When times get hard, help them to remember that you have called them to this. We pray these things in faith in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, and if I had to sum this sermon up in a sentence, I would say that true external obedience obedience is dependent on personal intimate communion with God. Say it one more time. True external obedience is dependent on personal intimate communion with God. The title of this message is, is entitled Pray Without Ceasing, and, and just kind of a review from last week, as we continue, as we started our participation series, as we're wrapping up our last few weeks of our core team series, we started this little mini session of participation. And, and last week we talked about worship. And what we saw there is that worship is actually way more than a song. Worship is way more than getting up here and playing guitar or all of us lifting our hearts and our, and our songs to, to Jesus. Worship is more than a song. It's actually sacrifice. It's, it's, it's the way that we live, it's who we are, it's, it's in our white blood cells as Christians. And, and today, we come to our next sermon, which is Pray Without Ceasing, and we're going to find out that just like worship, praying is not always audible, that, that praying is not always done with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our hands folded, praying is much more than that. And I'm not going to give us four ways uh, how we can pray for our church. I'm not going to give us six ways this morning of how we can pray for the nations. I'm not going to give us seven ways this morning of how we're going to to pray for a more fruitful and efficient Christian life or how we can pray these ten things over our family. That's not the direction that I'm heading. Uh, even though that was kind of where I wanted it to go, I wanted to list out these ways that we could be praying for our church plant and being getting getting involved, God totally changed the course of the direction of where I was headed with this section of Scripture in First Thessalonians, and he really hammered me this these last few days. I, I, I want to get to the root of it all. I'm not headed in the direction of, of giving us these four practical ways to pray, but I want to get to the root of it of why we pray. I want us to see how we personally commune with God, and I want us to see how little or how much intimate time we actually spend with him. I want us to see that an attitude of dependence on God revealed in unceasing prayer makes us able to truly be obedient externally. And, and I think that without joy, without prayer, and without thanksgiving, we are absolutely useless Christians, and we're unable to accomplish the outer aspects of God's will for our lives. See, the quality of our obedience to the external will of God in our lives is determined by the quality of our obedience to the internal will of God in our lives. And we'll find that that et- internal will here in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 is actually um, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances. And so I'm not going to give us four ways or six ways because if we focus internally on praying without ceasing, then these external things, these four ways, six ways, different things that we could pray will actually be a fruit of what's happening inside. Does that make sense? So let's read now. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in First Thessalonians in chapter 5, beginning in verse <clears throat> 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You can be seated. So in order to tackle this this section of Scripture, in order to to preach it faithfully, we have to ask this question, why rejoice? Why pray continually? And why give thanks in all circumstances? And so this leads us to our first point in, in the section of Scripture uh we we do this stuff because because personal communion with God leads to true external obedience you see verses 16 through 18 they they're really i mean they're fire these are like colin said last night at freeway he's like man i really don't even want to preach anymore on this verse because god said it best and what more could i add to it you know we read this section of scripture and i can close the bible and head out and be just fine it preaches on its own but to fully understand verses 16 through 18 we have to we have to understand verses 12 through 15. So let's read verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And furthermore, In verse 11, Paul tells the church to continue to encourage and to build one another up. And so there's not more of an effective way of carrying out this instruction in verse 11 of continuing to encourage and building one another another up than by what we see written here for improvement in verses 12 through 15. So at the top of the list there in verse 12, we see the, the proper attitude that the local church body should have for their leaders. And I love how Paul begins this address. He kind of sets aside his apostolic authority, meaning, you know, God God has commissioned Paul, right? God has sent Paul out. He has given him apostolic authority. He writes the scriptures as as God has inspired him to do so. And so Paul, with his authority, could absolutely step on the scene to any church and say, this is how it is, right? He is a messenger from God. He could say, this is how this needs to be. But instead, he kind of sets it aside and he says, we ask you, brothers. In that word, in the original language, we ask you, it's, it's literally, a, it's a request. And it's not just a request, but it's a request from a friend. So it's, it's a request from a friend that the body should not only respect their leaders, but should also hold them in high regard. And so who are these leaders that, that he's talking about? Are they government leaders? Uh, who are these leaders? What we see in the text is that these leaders are those who, who labor among them. We see that these leaders are those who are over them in the Lord. We see that those leaders are those who admonish them. Three things. And so Paul's asking that the church respect and highly esteem these leaders who are working hard among them, who are following in Paul's example and uh And 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 9 of this book, when he says that, hey, you knew how we worked. We toiled and labored among you day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden to you guys as we proclaim the gospel. And so they're not, he's not being a burden. So they're following in the same example. They are the example of true laborers of love among the church versus the problem group that we'll see who did nothing, who were lazy, who were slack. And we see in 2 Thessalonians that Paul even says that if you don't work, you don't eat, talking about some of these folks. And so the verse continues to identify these, these leaders by saying that they are not only laborers, but that they are over the congregation in the Lord. And so the, part, the participle, the who are over you, it has two connotations to it. It has two meanings. One is stand over. And two is care for. Who are over you? The first is stand over. The second is care for. So the leaders stood over the rest of the assembly in authority. They were ruling over them. But don't get it twisted because the leaders also cared for them. Not dominating over them in the authority that's been given to them. But ruling with a sincere interest in the welfare of the church body. Leading out of love and leading out of compassion. So this is the type of leaders... Uh, that that Paul is calling them to respect and highly esteem, and so these hardworking leaders who stood over and cared for the congregation also admonished the body. So to admonish is is actually to bring correction by word or by action, and so it's probably our least favorite thing as Christians. It's discipline. Admonishment is is, is discipline, and discipline sometimes causes resentment right and discipline sometimes can cause hard feelings and most of the times it's 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 that way but it's regarded that way but but it's also regarded as paul or by paul as necessary within the church and you'll actually find it very interesting that the early baptists actually kind of looked at church discipline like it was an ordinance such as the lord's supper and baptism and they they even were bold enough to say that if a church does not practice church discipline it's no church at all it's i mean you can't tell me that each and every single one of us here in this room is just absolutely perfect right? Like, we're not going to sin. We ain't ever going to foul up sometimes and need a brother or sister to pull up on one another and say, hey, Kyra, I seen you doing that over there, and hey, you need to chill out. Don't do that. This doesn't look like Christ, right? Like, because that's the form of discipline. It's not just ultimately right away, Kyra, get up here on the stage. We're casting you out. We're banishing you. Like, that's not, that's not what it is. It's meant to bring about um, repentance, right? And so, He's saying that they also admonish. And so these leaders that that Paul is describing are leaders who are hardworking, who guide and rule the church body through genuine, heartfelt care for the congregation and who administer discipline in the church body. So because of their work, Paul asks the church as a friend to respect them and to highly esteem them. So Paul closes his instructions about leadership with the command for the leaders as well as a con- as, as well as the congregation as a whole. This isn't just for the leaders. This is also for the congregation as a whole. And he, and he commands them to be at peace among yourselves. And so, I mean, this kind of brings some things up in, in lieu of what we had just read about leaders admonishing people about needing to be held in high esteem and honor. Uh, you know, it could bring some things up that, that maybe things weren't going um, like they should have been in the church in Thessalonica you know maybe the leaders uh, maybe he said this so that the leaders would guard against abusing their authority and maybe he had said this so that those who were being admonished those who were being disciplined were not uh, to disregard those whom God placed over them see the church was to be at peace with each other and that's something that I I, I impose on us as well we need to be at peace with one another As the Bible says, um, do everything, basically do everything in your power to live at peace with all men. See, Paul's exhortation of improvement within the church, of external obedience, it continues in verses 14 through 15. He says that we urge you, brothers. And so he shifts from his his more of a kinder approach of saying, hey, we ask you to... He's taking on a more authoritative way of saying this and saying, we urge you, brothers... And he's speaking to the entire church. We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idols. So we know what admonish means. He's saying we urge you, brothers, to correct the ones who are lazy. Correct the ones who are slack. Correct the ones who are disorderly in conduct. And more than that, we urge you, brothers, not only to admonish the idol, but to encourage the faint-hearted to comfort those who are timid and faint-hearted. In light of chapter 4, I don't know if you guys have ever read 1 Thessalonians, but if you haven't, you should uh, this week, probably tonight or tomorrow. In light of Chapter Four, what's the the people in Chapter Four are are in the church are very troubled over their friends and over their family who are who have died in Christ, and they're asking Paul like, "Hey, did we miss this this resurrection? What happens to the one who are dead already? Like before Christ came, you know these things? They're confused about what the coming of Christ meant for them. So he's saying, encourage those faint hearted people. He's saying, and also uh, we urge you brothers to help the weak." And now he's not saying those who are weak in strength, it's, it's not saying like how I have to help Cody every single morning lift weights because he's so stinking weak, you know what I'm saying? It, it's literally, he's not saying that in the terms of strength, He's saying it more in the terms of moral or spiritual weakness. So help those who are weak from persecution as described in chapter 3. Help those who are weak in yielding to uh, temptations and and other ungodly desires and immorality in chapter 4. Or maybe it's some other weakness that's hard to determine, but he's saying you need to help that. And regardless of whatever that weakness was, he's saying that the strong in faith were responsible to help, to support, to lift up those who were weak. And then again, he, he continues on with, I think, I mean, this, I'm just going to talk to you like, like the Lord talked to me. This verse really smoked me in the face, man, when I got to it. Be patient with them all. After he gives this list of how he is supposed to, uh, after he get, gives this list of urging uh, the brothers to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, um, to, to, uh, to help the weak, he says, and by the way, be patient with them all. The idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, you see, they require a special temperament. They, they require a special disposition when correcting them, when encouraging them, when helping them. You know, these are people who are struggling. These are people who are hurting. These people, they, they may even be people who are in sin, and we're not above it. And they need to be dealt with in patience, is what Paul says. And this goes for all Christians. We don't run a, like a one-strike-and-you're-out kind of church here. It's not like, hey, you came, and now that you're not perfect like me, you're out of here. You know what I'm trying to say? If that was the case, i had been out a long time ago. Y'all have been looking for a new pastor. See, growth is a very steady process. I look at, I look at Rev, you know, on our doorway where we mark his height. Man and we would we 'd mark his height, and there 's sometimes between you know six months to twelve years old or six months to uh, to whatever like how we 've marked him that he 's like shot up, you know what i 'm saying, but from 12 months to 18 months there's nothing but maybe an inch or so you know and it's just it's a slow and steady process rev ain't just gonna be you know as tall as me overnight he he don't grow as fast as a dog does you know what i'm saying Uh, slow it's a slow and steady process and the same is true for us as christians growth is a process it's a slow and steady thing you know these people who are broken maybe over death in their families um, death of their friends these these people who are uh, confused over what the coming of the Lord has in store for them Uh, these people who are weak and maybe in spiritual discipline we must be patient in dealing with them and I say that because I want you to think about how much of a knucklehead you are I mean how much of a knucklehead are you Kyra Pretty much, right? Like you're the realest ding in the whole house, right? You know, we're all knuckleheads, aren't we? I mean, I know Cody from a long time ago. Cody's a huge knucklehead. Every one of us are. I know that I am. I'm a huge knucklehead. And at one time or another, we've all been weak. We've all been faint hearted. We've all been idle. Every one of us have been. And the Lord willing, every single one of us has been brought back by the patient, helpful, caring correction of a brother or sister in Christ, right? So we have to be patient, because we're all knuckleheads. We all the, the 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 weak, the broken, the hurting, the idle, need to be dealt with in a special temperament. So finally, Paul says in verse fifteen, "See that no one see that no one repays evil for evil." And you know, because of our sin nature, we're quick to retaliate. Right when. It's very natural for us when we get hit in the face to want to hit them back harder, right? It's very natural for us when somebody calls us a mean name to want to sting back at them with an even worse one. That'll cut deeper, right? It's in our nature to hurt them back, right? We're quick to retaliate. But this has to be resisted in the fullest extent. I mean, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul goes into it in Romans chapter 12, and Peter even talks about it in his epistle as well. The need for personal revenge has to be resisted. In fact, I mean, here, here it is. When you look at somebody, look at Jesus, for instance, the ultimate example, innocent, right? Right? The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, beaten, punched, whipped, rejected, mocked, ridiculed, purple robe thrown on him and ripped back off to open up his wounds again. Mocked, right? If anybody should have retaliated, it should have been him. But as the guide of ultimate spiritual maturity, as our example, he didn't retaliate, right? And so when somebody calls you a mean name next time, when somebody slaps you in the face, when somebody persecutes you for the sake of Christ, not to retaliate doesn't show weakness, but it shows strength, meekness, power under control, like a bridled horse, right? Like the ultimate example of Christian maturity, our Lord Jesus. So Paul gives us the alternative actually to retaliation here in the second half of verse 15. He says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, the alternative here is to expend all of our energy in doing good or to being kind to someone. So it doesn't matter the size of the wound. It doesn't matter if they gaseous wide open. It doesn't matter whether it comes from a Christian or a non-Christian or not. It doesn't matter who hurt us. We are to spend every ounce of energy we have in returning only good to all people. You see, because the focus isn't on us who is offended. The focus is on the welfare of the offender. Does that make sense? See, I started seeing a, a, a biblical counselor, and, and I talked to him, right? And, and there's, there's people in my life that have hurt me, and, and he tells me that the ultimate goal, Tanner, is not for you to focus on your pain, but for you to, to see how you are supposed to reconcile that person to Christ, right? Like the focus is more on the offender than on the one who is offended. If anybody had a right to be offended, it was Jesus. But what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The focus was on the offender and not on the offended. So thank you, Lord. So maybe an act of love, and of, you never know, maybe an act of love of repaying evil for good will be a means that, that God uses them to draw them to repentance you never know. And so there's there's this instruction to the church for their mutual edification of respecting leaders, admonishing the idol, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient, not retaliating. And there's so much more that the church does, right? But these are primary points for improvement within the church that any church can learn from. And, and it's wise of Paul to state these things. And it's important to know that the entire church body is uh, is and are responsible for corrective measures. It's not just my job to go to Cody and say, hey, Cody, you're tripping, right? It's not just my job to, to pull up on Colin and say, hey, I, I noticed that behavior that you were doing, Colin, is not very Christ-like. You know, that's not, it's not just my job. It's, it belongs to all of us as Christians, all of us. And so I would venture to say to use caution in doing that by examining the log that's in your own eye first before you pick out the speck in somebody else's, amen? And so these are primary points. It's not only just for leaders. As Christians, we are to correct, encourage, and help one another in patience and in love. And if you are the one in need of correction like I am a lot of times, if I'm the one who's in need of encouragement, or if I'm the one who's in need of help because I'm weak, don't take that correction, don't take that help, don't take that encouragement as a slap in the face. Don't take it as evil, don't let it wound you, but recognize the help, recognize the encouragement, recognize the correction and see the see the good message in it acknowledge the love from a brother or sister and receive it with joy. And so I know what you guys are all thinking right now. You're like, "Hey, I hear what you're saying. This is supposed to be a sermon on prayer. You've probably spent about 15, 20 minutes already on the first point. Can we get going?" But as I said in the beginning, the the, the quality of our obedience to the external will of God in our lives is determined by the quality of our obedience to the internal will of God in our lives. So in other words, the only way we're going to be able to do what Paul tells us to do here in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 is if we spend time with God continually right and so our second point what does personal communion with God look like verses 16 through 18 which we've read and when i when i talk about communion what does personal communion with God look like when i talk about communion i'm not referring to anything externally it's everything that happens inside of us as christians so let's look at what paul has to say about the christian's inner life he begins in, in verse 16 by saying rejoice always and if you guys were here on christmas eve you guys know um, what that term joy means right it's literally grace recognized it blew me away when i learned that the, and so the state of joy or rejoice is literally the state of joy because grace is recognized right it's the byproduct of joy it's it's something that we do it's a verb grace is recognized i remember one time i was at a youth retreat and some of you raise your hands obviously probably just three of us maybe if you've ever been to a youth retreat before so about three of us when we start getting more people and we get more involved in youth camps and stuff you guys are up man everyone ends because we've i mean you guys have really had your fair share i've i've started to get in there a little bit but when when you're at a youth retreat or if you're at a youth camp if you're an adult man by day two you're tired and you're wore out and you want your own bed and to tell you the truth like these kids are on your last nerve sometimes right you know and so at this youth retreat on day two on in the morning uh, one of my friends is walking outside uh, of the church to go get some instructions to some more uh, wild teenagers right and and I looked at him and I said hey man where's your joy and he turned around and he looked at me he's like what are you talking about and I said I said you don't look very happy you know you look downcast and he said joy and happiness are two separate things and man, it really stung. Like it really, it hit home. And I was like, man, you're right. See, because happiness, the expression on your face can come and can go. But the joy that a Christian has cannot be taken away, right? Why do you say that? Because if joy is grace recognized, his grace is always there. It never banishes. Grace always abounds, right? Your joy can't disappear. It's up for us to recognize it though, right? And so he was joyful in his heart, serving the Lord, doing what God had called him to do. But his face might have told a different story because he wasn't maybe happy. They're not the same thing. You can have joy in the midst of trial when you're crying your eyes out because somebody that you love has just gotten into a terrible car accident or something. You can still have joy because you know where they're headed maybe. You know what I'm saying? However, like I said, it's up to us to recognize his grace and therefore rejoice. And So what makes Christian joy so unique, what makes it so profound, what makes it so awesome is that it emerges in the most adverse circumstances. See, take the Thessalonians, for example. They'd already experienced persecution, right? Yet they suffered with joy. You think about what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians when he says that, you know, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's a beautiful paradox. See, Christian joy is like the sun, the sun in the sky. Christian joy is like the sun. No matter how dark the night is, No matter how many foes and adversaries come against you in the night, no matter how long the cold hours of the night may seem, the sun is guaranteed to rise brilliantly in the eastern sky on every day. Amen. And as the sun emerges, what's it do? It casts out the darkness into the furthest shadows of the earth, and it sends our adversaries running for refuge, and it makes all the long hours in the night seem like a few seconds because we feel the sweet warmth of the sun upon our face. Amen. And Christian joy is like that rising sun emerging in the eastern sky. Just when we think that the night will not relent, just when we think that the foes will not keep coming or won't stop coming, there she is. Joy is bringing in the grace of a new day. Amen. So joy is such a paradox. And, and the definition of a paradox blew my mind. I love the study of words. It says, A paradox is is something that seems absurd. It seems far-fetched, but when investigated or explained, it's proven to be well-founded and true. And so joy is a paradox. How can you have joy in the middle of a disaster? Because it's a paradox. It seems absurd, but when investigated and explained, it proves to be well-founded and true. And from a human perspective, everything that you're going through right now, because each and every single one of us is going through something, it should absolutely crumble us. From a human perspective, it should absolutely tear us down and we should have every reason not to be joyful. You know, Maybe your marriage is so stinking hard you want to throw in the towel. Maybe you're having these difficulties in parenting and you're just not having any respect from your kids and you're just done at your wit's end. Maybe you're experiencing spiritual warfare that's just topped out. Maybe you have this weakness in your flesh and you just can't beat this sin in your life. No, maybe you have a broken heart after losing somebody that you love. Possibly there's persecution from the outside or there's friction from inside among brothers and sisters. Whatever it might be, whatever the circumstance may be, just like the sun, know that your joy will emerge in this dark time that you're in. That's the paradox of joy. You have every reason not to rejoice, not to be joyful, but because of grace recognized there she rises again. Grace always abounds. And in Christ, we are to be more and more joyful, recognizing his grace in every circumstances. We are to rejoice always. And as verse 17 says, we are also to pray without ceasing. Here we are. We're finally to a point where we talk about prayer. But as verse 17 says, we're to pray without ceasing. And Robert L. Thomas, uh, the guy, the commentary that I used as preparing the sermon, he writes about uh, verse seventeen, and he says this: intimately related to rejoice always is praying without ceasing, as it is the only way to cultivate a joyful attitude in times of trial. Now, I'll read it again: intimately related to rejoice always is praying without ceasing, as it is the only way to cultivate sorry a joyful attitude in times of trial. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we hole away for 24 hours to pray constantly. It doesn't mean that we go lock ourselves in the closet and here we are, don't bring me no food, don't bring me no water, I'm gonna pray without ceasing. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we are praying verbally nonstop, walking around outside and going about our day-to-day lives just talking out loud, hey, sorry, I can't have a conversation with you, I'm praying. No, that's not what this means. It means that we're constantly, repeatedly praying out of a concrete dependence on God with or without the words it's that's not the issue the vocalization is not the issue the vital thing is that we're lifting up our hearts our innermost being to God throughout the day and throughout the night as we're occupied with our daily duties that means as Cody pumps concrete and delivers concrete day in and day out, he, his heart is fixed on God, praying without ceasing, thinking about everything that he's doing and relating it to God and offering his heart to the Lord and his concrete dependence on him because without God, he couldn't succeed. He couldn't move on. He couldn't press on, right? Like that's the idea behind this. And I'll talk more about prayer here in a second. So let's look at verse 18. The last command that, we, that we'll be looking at, as Paul says, is to give thanks in all circumstances. See, with the context of First Thessalonians uh, in mind, you know, with their persecution, their confusion, their faint-heartedness, and their suffering, we find the truth behind this statement of, um, um, of giving thanks in all circumstances. And it coincides with rejoice always. See, there's no circumstance, and this is so beautiful, guys. There's no circumstance and no happening that can be coined bad for the Christian. Doesn't seem like heretical, doesn't it? Like it almost seems not true. There's no circumstance and there's no happening that can be coined bad for the Christian. There's nothing, no circumstance, no situation that can be termed bad for the Christian. Why do you say that? Romans chapter eight and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That means everything. All things, right? So all of these afflictions that, that we're facing that I listed earlier, all of these aggravations that are going on in our life, all of these trials, all of these persecutions that we face are part of the bigger picture and it's for our spiritual maturity and our well-being. And when we recognize that, that God will not leave us nor forsake us, when we acknowledge that what some people mean for evil, God intends for good, when we see that he is in control of the situation that we're in, we can always find a reason to be thankful. That's what Paul is encouraging Thessalonians to do. And, and something that I also learned from this commentary is, is that when we fail to be thankful in the circumstance that we're in, whether it's a hard circumstance or a good circumstance, whether it's death or whether it's life, whether it's persecution or whether it's reconciliation, when we fail to be thankful in the circumstance that we're in, it becomes unbelief, which is sin. And we begin to doubt that God won't fulfill this for good according to his word and his purpose. And so smashed between rejoicing and thankfulness, we find prayer. And so, like a sandwich, I don't know how, any other way to relate smashed between than sandwich, right? So, like a sandwich, verse 16 and 18 act like the bread. So, uh, rejoice always and, and, and um, give thanks in all circumstances. Act like the bread that holds the filling, which is pray without ceasing together inside. It, it, verse 16 and, and uh, verse 16 and 18 make verse 17 a sandwich, right? Or 17 makes 16 and 18 a sandwich. So what makes a sandwich a sandwich is is that the two pieces of bread must have something inside of it, right? Whether it's peanut butter and jelly, whether it's ham and cheese, whether it's just cheese, maybe you're just eating mayonnaise because you're doing bad, I don't know. But it has to have something inside of it. That's what makes a sandwich a sandwich. If there's not something inside of it, it's just a loaf of bread, right? It's just two pieces of bread there. And so the same is true here. What makes verses 16 and 18 possible, what makes rejoicing and thankfulness possible is the vehicle of prayer. Prayer, unceasing prayer, is the meat that makes this a sandwich, in other terms, in other words, right? You understand what I'm saying? I know you do. I do too. (laughs) Food speaks right to my heart. (laughs) He's like, I get it. I'm hungry now. See, prayer is the means in in which we get to express our gratitude to God. It's the vehicle. It's the means in which we can rejoice. It's through that prayer. How else do we communicate with God other than that that praying without ceasing? How else can we let God know about uh, how we're rejoicing in the trial that we're in or or how we're giving thanks in the trial that that we're in if we don't voice it or if we don't speak it, lifting our hearts up uh, to God through prayer? See, praying without ceasing, lifting our hearts to God constantly, and all that we do is how we can remain joyful and thankful as we recognize His grace and His good intentions for our life, for our spiritual well being. And I think, and I really kind of think that this is how it's done. You know, Naomi's dad, he always says, Thank you, Lord. You know, everything that He does, like all kinds, it doesn't matter if he flips an egg right, thank you, Lord, right, like everything, thank you, Lord, even his little, her little sister's got it down, Nikki's like, thank you, Lord, like, I'm sure Rev's gonna figure it out soon enough, too, everything that he's doing is thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, any situation, good, bad, ugly, he gets around to it, thank you, Lord, and I think that's what this looks like. You, you walk around your daily life, whether you're, you're cleaning, or whether you're teaching kids at a Christian academy, or whether you're at school, driving a concrete truck, stay at home mom, um, working at the church, being a pastor, we go through our daily lives saying thank you, Lord, or asking, Lord, what would you have me do right now in this circumstance? Lord, would you give me the words to speak to Mike, or to, or to Ron over here, or, or to Rob over there? Would you give me the words to speak to them? Lord, would you help me comfort that person in this time that they're going through um, lord lord look at all that you've created god you created a beautiful place i'm thankful god for what you've what you've done it's so beautiful i don't deserve it you know maybe it's it's lord forgive me for for saying what i just said not audibly just you just said that in your heart forgive me lord for what i thought what i said maybe it's it's saying throughout the day lord i've, I've been carrying this burden I've been carrying this burden, and Lord, you reminded me in the Scripture this morning that it's not mine to carry, that it's yours. You've carried it for me, and I'm laying it down to you. Maybe you're saying it's dark And it's lonely, Lord. I I feel incapable of doing what you've called me to do. Oh, how I need your gospel. Oh, how I need your strength. I thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, that he rose again after three days, that he ascended to the right hand of God, and that he's coming back. I thank you that you made a way for me to be reconciled to you. Maybe it's preaching the gospel to yourself. Whatever it is, you're lifting your heart to him. And, And maybe you're saying, God, would you please restore my strength? Would you please give me the joy of my salvation? That thing that you told me to lay down lord give me the strength to lay it down this is constant communion with god and this should be happening from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep right like it's in every part of it you commune with god with how you parent your kids you commune with god with how you interact with your friends you commune with god with how you sit in the worship service right you're communing with god help me lord fix my mind on you help me receive your word this morning we're utterly dependent on him concrete dependence They're conversations with God. They're not just mediocre conversations, but speaking from your innermost being with God throughout your day, sharing with the one who is always with you. It's constant fellowship with Him. This is praying without ceasing, being centered in Him and utterly dependent on Him. These three commands to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances penetrate the deepest parts of who we are as Christians. This is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. It's the spring from which all outward obedience flows. You, you, you see, if the source is contaminated, this is what I read in this commentary, if the source is contaminated, fulfillment of God's will in outward matters is impossible. This, these three things, rejoicing, praying and being thankful is the stream in which our outward obedience flows. If the source is contaminated, fulfillment of God's will in outwards matters is impossible. So this message is on prayer. And, and usually these, these messages result in, like I said, giving us five or six points in how we can pray for the church. Uh, you might end here, you know, most, most, maybe messages on prayer you would end up with a prayer partner or 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 something there'd be a prayer list or we'd start a night of prayer after this or something and all of these are good things and i'm sure one day they're going to come but to be honest i'd be missing the point of what really matters what good is it if i hammer if i hammer us with different ways to pray if the deepest parts of who we are as christians is contaminated by idleness what good is it veranda if i hammer us with different ways to pray if the source is polluted by simple ignorance, by, by a lack of knowledge, I'm more focused on the internal state of your spiritual health, on the heart, on the secret places that nobody else sees but God. That's what I'm more fo- more fo- focused with. That's what I'm more concerned with are these areas. Than I, I'm more concerned with these areas than I am with your, your verbal commitment and your voluntary commitment to pray for the church's needs. And you might say, why is that? And I'll reveal that in our last point here. How can we participate as a church with this text? As I built this sermon, like I said, I was headed in the opposite direction, but through the text, God showed me some pretty marvelous things. In order for us individually to participate in multiplying disciples in churches that live and look like Jesus wherever we're planted, we must personally be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Um, the, The commentary that I was going through again says... The true victories in life are won by Christians who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. So how can we participate as a church with this text? We must rejoice always. It's number one. We have to take a hard look at the love that God demonstrates towards us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means we must wrap our mind around the fact that we were unworthy, sin-sick sinners held in bondage by the devil with nothing to offer But God looked upon us and he had compassion on us and he saved us by the blood of his son and he set us free and he brought us into his family, giving us the same rights as the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What grace. He made us sons and he made us daughters. We were once orphans, but then he brought us into his homes. He brought us from rags and he made us riches. He made us royalty. We're king's kids. Amen. We rejoice because we recognize the magnitude of his grace and salvation. And so when the next time the darkness falls upon you, I challenge you to proclaim this gospel to yourself and think about what he's brought you from and think about where he's brought you to because the old adage is true. The things that I prayed for five years ago, I'm overlooking now. I prayed for these things to be where I am today. Amen? Haven't you? Haven't you? We come to recognize this grace, this undeserved favor that sustains us every day, and it's as constant and steady as the rising sun. This leads us to rejoice always. We participate as a church by giving thanks in all circumstances, recognizing that there's not a moment of this finite life that is meaningless, understanding that every situation, good or bad, has supreme value, Coming to grips with the reality that God is in total control and that he is working even the darkest trials of our lives for good causes us to be overwhelmingly thankful no matter the circumstance. So we participate with this text by praying without ceasing. It's through prayer that we're able to offer up our song of joy. It's through prayer that we're able to offer up our hallelujah of thanksgiving. We participate by praying without ceasing and setting our hearts on the one worthy of all of our devotion and all of our attention. And In all of our moments of our lives, we communicate with God, thanking Him for the ugly circumstances and rejoicing that His grace emerges like the rising sun. And it's in this intimate place, alone in the garden, in that spot that only you and God know. It's in this place where the victories are won. Amen? It's in that quiet little place, alone in the garden, where the victories are won. And they are won by prayers that no one will ever hear, probably. If we want to participate and be useful to God, we have to start in this secret place. We must discover our joy. We must exercise prayer, and we must be thankful for this will of God for our lives. When we start here, we then are able to do His will outwardly. We are able to operate in joy, prayer, thanksgiving. We can truly respect and honor our leaders. When we commune with God intimately through rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving, we then are able to respond how we would respond to the idol, or how we should respond to the idol, to the faint-hearted, and to the weak. Without a settled dependence on God displayed through unceasing prayer, we are not patient people. Without rejoicing in the grace of God and seeking His will and thanking God for the trial, we will only destroy, cut down, or retaliate against those who hurt us. So you ask me now, how can this apply to church planting? You guys realize we're in a church plant, right? How does this apply to church planting? True external obedience is dependent on personal communion with God. And personal communion with God always involves prayer. So what I'm saying is is, is we're no good to others. We're no good to leaders. We're no good to our church. We're no good to each other unless we spend constant, continual communion with God. And that's why I say it's vital that we start here with the hearts and not so much with the words or the prompts. Again, if the source is polluted, so will it be with all of our work. And before you know it, we'll be praying out of obligation because we have to or serving because we feel pressured to do something. But we start here because I know as a leader, if if my people are rejoicing always, if my people are praying without ceasing, if my people are thankful in all circumstances, then my people are doing what God has called us to do externally, and they're doing it well. Because again, it's determined, the external is determined by the internal. So this applies to church planting, because as we answer God's call to plant this church, each one of us individually here has answered God's call to plant this church. When we when we answered his call, we put a huge target on our back, guys. Each one of us here has just as much involvement in planting this church as the next. It's not just up to Naomi and I. It's up to you guys as well, each and every single one of you guys. And each one of you has a big target on your back. And am, am I the only one here this morning who since planting this church has just felt like the oppression has been so thick. I understand that we battle uh, principalities and, and spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. Every single day we're engaged in spiritual warfare. I understand that. But since planting this church, it seems to have gotten even harder. And the foot is in my neck. And it's a battle every single day. Am I the only one that has experienced that? Am, am I the only one that seems like it's, I'm getting more sick now than ever? My kid is more sick now than ever. Am I the only one that's experiencing and seeing that if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong lately? Am I the only one? I didn't think so. And so we have two options. We can either be thankful in this present circumstance that we're counted worthy of being persecuted by the Satan or, or persecuted by the evil one or being counted worthy of being persecuted by outsiders or we can complain and sulk in unbelief doubting that God is bringing about good for our spiritual well-being. We have two options, be thankful or sulk. One's unbelief and the other brings spiritual maturity. So this is our church, guys. Veranda, this is our church. This is our church plant, Anthony. This is our opportunity, Cody, that God has given us to be stretched thin, to be persecuted, to be oppressed. May we be thankful for the opportunity that God has given us to grow. And may we uh, unceasingly offer up hallelujahs of praise. This is our church plant, Naomi. This is our church plant call in this is our opportunity to reach the city of omaha with the gospel this is the season that god has given each one of us to multiply disciples that live and look like jesus wherever we're planted and it's going to be hard veranda it's going to be hard and lord willing we will suffer for the sake of christ and you heard me right lord willing we will suffer for the sake of christ it's going to be hard i want you to think about it look at the church in thessalonica It was birthed in oppression and in persecution. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 17. He shows up on the scene. He preaches the gospel. They get irate, form a mob. The whole city's in an uproar, and they go and attack Jason's house where they're staying, where the Christian is. Bring them before the court. Bring them before the people. And we're complaining because things aren't going our way right? Like, it's going to be hard. We're going to face spiritual oppression. We're going to face attacks from the enemy. We're going to face being turned down from local schools. We're going to face these things. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And that's why we must always participate by praying without ceasing why we must be utterly dependent on God. We have to understand that even when the darkness won't relent, even when the foes press against us, we can rejoice always because our joy isn't dependent on our circumstances. Amen. It's rooted in grace and grace always abounds and it will always rise like the morning sun. We are called to participate. God has called you to Imago Day, each and every one of you guys, for a reason. This city This country and this world will be impacted by our church because we are Christians who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. True external obedience is dependent on personal, intimate communion with God. The quality of our obedience to his external will in our lives is determined by the quality of obedience to his internal will in our lives. So let's pray without ceasing. As I get ready to pray... I'm going to pray, and then after that, we'll do the Lord's Supper, and then after that, Joanna's going to come up and, and close us in a song. You can stay seated for now, Joanna, and we'll do the Lord's Supper first. But I want to pray, and as we pray, Colin's going to turn on the music, and, and I want you guys just to prepare your hearts for taking in the Lord's Supper, to not do this with an un, in, a, in an unworthy manner. I want you guys to, to pray and think about, hey, man, how is it, that, that the in, my, my obedience to his internal will of, of being joyful, prayerful, and thankful at all times, in all circumstances, H- how is that going? How is my obedience to that? How's the quality of that? I want you to really reflect on those things. So let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're grateful for this church. I thank, every, I thank you for every single one of them here in this place. Lord, I thank you for the trials that we've faced. Lord, I thank you um, for the people who, who have turned down coming to the church even. And I, and I thank you, God, for not giving us this huge rapid growth. And God, I thank you even for all the trials that we've had, even with the indictments and, and with the deaths and with the sicknesses and with the new foster children with, um, you know, sicknesses with, with mental health and the problems and all the struggles. I thank you for every single one of them I'm so grateful, God, and I pray, Father, that each and every single one of us here in this room this morning would fix our eyes on you and trust and know that just like the rising morning sun, your grace abounds, and that we can have joy. We can have joy no matter what, and that, God, our hearts would be convicted to turn to, to pray to you without ceasing in everything that we do and concrete dependence, relying on you, God. I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.